When the campaign started, Brexit looked a bit like a few nasties, a few weirdos. <laughs> Without the working class vote, it would never have happened. It was decisive, and this was the moment that they could say, and the thing I kept on hearing was, if we don't do this, you, they said, pointing at me, will never listen to another word we say. Mm. Right, so it was a real reclamation mm. of some form of democratic accountability, a restoration of, of a democracy where people were allowed to make their mistakes. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Morris Glassman. Morris is a Labour life peer in the House of Lords. He is Baron Glassman of Stoke Newington and of Stamford Hill. He is a political theorist, an academic, and a widely published commentator on political affairs. He is deeply involved in thinking about and talking about the nature of the Labour Party and the future of the Labour Party. He was a policy advisor to Ed Miliband when Miliband was Labour leader. And Morris coined the term Blue Labour to describe a small-c conservative form of socialism, one which would emphasise a return to community values based around trade unions, the church, voluntary groups, and so on. Morris has been critical of both new Labour and old Labour, and he is, in my view, one of the most articulate critics of the European Union project. He is the author of Unnecessary Suffering, Managing Market Utopia, and he has described himself, intriguingly, as a radical traditionalist. Morris, welcome to the show. Really, thank you for inviting me. I, I guess I have to kick off by asking you, I gave a little brief description there, but if you could just tell us what you mean and what you understand by Blue Labour. There are so many coloured political creeds floating around at the moment, red Toryism, blue-collar conservatism led by Esther McVeigh and various others, and then the one that stands out and the one which I think is enjoying a lot of commentary and popularity is Blue Labour. So what does it mean to you? Well, so I'm not a Tory and I'm not really red. So, that, that you know... That, that helped me. It was, I was trying to articulate my own views and what capitalism essentially does in splitting families up, moving people away from the people that they love and the places that they were born about giving a primacy to just individual self-interest. I was very innocent. Really. I, and I was working with London citizens, community mm -hmm. organizing on living wage and an uh, anti-usury campaign in 2008 when the crash came you know the banks were borrowing at half a percent and poor people were borrowing at five thousand percent just to give you some idea of what drives me completely <laughs> nuts mm. and what i found in london citizens working with black church muslim overwhelmingly catholic communities was a similarity to my mum's views my mum was working class labor who didn't question that family was really important work there was a from a jewish background so a cosmic debt to britain about fighting fascism mm. but only the jews in in britain actually lived a certain modesty of approach um a suspicion of 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 career all these things but when i began to talk to my own class the class that i emerged into educated graduate middle class about these matters about families stability patriotism i was told that these were tory values right. that they weren't socialist or or labor values but the more i looked into labor history the more they were completely fundamental the founding acts i, I know you said and so on in the beginning but the formation of burial societies so that working class people could have a dignified burial was in fact the first act of the labor movement through the cooperatives right because previously to that, after enclosures, uh, working class people had a pauper's grave, mass graves. Mm. And, and then the formation of the building societies where somehow a home was retrieved in the world and the importance of, of a home and a settlement and community you, you share with others. So I became sort of belligerent about it and said, no, these are, these are fundamental. What your values are are liberal values. And it was precisely the Labour movement that didn't join the Liberal Party, which it could have done. And its genius was to combine 
a sense of security, stability and mutuality, which was a huge movement um, in the late 19th, early 20th century where people pooled their resources to to improve their lives. Mm. So they kept on saying, you know, these are just toy values, these are conservative values. So I said, I was going to sod it, I'll just call it blue labour then. <laughs> just um, And also the blue was due to another thing, that very important thing, which is that in progressive thought, you know, what's the least true thing you've ever heard in politics? The line, things can only get better. But there is in progressive thought an optimistic teleology, the idea that things will improve, things can only get better. And what I saw was that people who experienced, you know, blue sadness, difficulty, were often, and particularly children, were often being diagnosed as depressed mm. and put on drugs, legal drugs. So I've seen in my life the move from illegal to legal drugs. Mm. You know, I see the difference between the 70s and now is that now people go to the doctor and get prescribed, you know, yeah. while, while then I witness people doing other things. So this idea of living with sadness, of, of that not being a pathology, that being the tragic, being part of life, that was also blue. And that kind of expressed how I felt about New Labour, that this was a superficial tragedy, that was a deep tragedy, that when the crash came, they had nothing. Mm. They had no political economy. It was the state, they'd put everything on an administrative state. So mm. those combination of things and understanding that life is difficult, sad, that the things that really matter in life are, are relational things, loving things, and, you know, being able to start to talk about things like being a good friend or faithful. This was all very hostile to the prevailing environment. So mm. Blue Labour kind of summarised, and to top it off, politics is not a rational activity. It's re It can be reasonable, but it's not rational. Loads of political matter is involved contradictions people think they're contradictions so we were very paradoxical in thinking that's when we coined phrases like radical traditionalists things like that yeah and so blue labor was also an expression that in, in politics you can have different pulls on your heart you know you can be simultaneously really radical and quite conservative in disposition and that's always what a successful politics is is a com combination of quite profound things that people will rationally say, well, they're contradictory, but we would say that they're mutually supportive. So we would say that being patriotic and internationalist mm. are mutually supportive. And, and we would say that being really radical economically and quite conservative socially are mutually supportive. But from a rationalist perspective, they look contradictory. So we thought we'd put out Blue Labour. Right. That's a very good outline of Blue Labour. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was was when you think those values which i agree with you are, are not tory values and it, i always find it very surprising when you know these kind of almost year zero pseudo radical leftists of today will look upon those things and sniff at them as kind of tory values and outdated values and un, unfashionable and maybe even borderline fascistic if you're interested in the family and the community and certainly reactionary reactionary so i agree with you that those, those values have a have a long tradition in labour heartlands and working class areas. Well, in working class life. In working class you life. You know, the absolutely. concept of being decent is someone who doesn't piss all their money away drinking, but yeah. takes it home. You know, these, these are things of fundamental importance. You know, we put, you know, every year we write a, like, you know, be nice to your mum. The, the, this is what people actually respect in a yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you when you think, that kind of stuff started to get lost in relation to the Labour Party. So uh, the, the easy answer, and I think an answer a lot of people would come up with, is New Labour. I mean, new, uh, like you, I am a stinging critic of the New Labour era, but I think you trace it back to around to 1945 and and the, the problems raised by the growth of welfareism in relation to working yeah, class communities. That, that's part of the story, but I do want to give credit to Atlee that people like Ernest Bevan, uh, Herbert Morrison were really significant political figures, people who emerged from both the trade unions and from municipal socialism. In many ways, he, he held the ring. The, the key thing in 45 was 
that Labour moved away from its position in the 20s and the 30s about worker-run or co-run industries. Mm. The, the Labour position was actually quite federal and decentralist, was that there should be the active participation of the workforce in the governance of their industries. And the railways were very strong on this. Really interesting plans for the canals, that they should be controlled by local community trusts. There were waves of this, the, the National Trust. So what happened in '45 is Labour went Fabian, and in some ways a bit Soviet, you know, in the sense of a centrally planned, yeah. nationalised economy. So 45 held attention, but the, let's say, the coalition between Hampstead and Hull was still operative and strong. <laughs> and they passed a lot of very pro-working class. It's just that the managers of the new industries were not workers, they were PPE mm. graduates. That's mm. where the... That's where the worm started. But it was really in the 60s when the socialist political economy started to fail, when the whole concept of nationalised, state-run, managerially planned economies was starting to be besieged, is that Labour then um, became quite liberal mm. in its social policy. And, and that links up that the state, because the state couldn't do the economy, therefore the state had to essentially take over the social. So the idea of the active participation of working class organisations mm. in their own lives, self-government. So this nationalisation of things did lead to essentially the elimination of the forms of the labour movement, yeah. which don't forget had schools, nurseries, they ran allotments, they ran a huge number of aspects, but all of those in the name of justice was taken over by the state. Mm. So that essentially when Thatcher came and Labour virtually completely caved in terms of political economy and the superiority of markets, all it had left was the progressive liberal agenda through the state. Mm. So that's a rough yeah. summary yeah. Of, of how I see. So it's been a long post-war, but all of it leads to the essential impotence, marginalisation and disintegration of those institutions that were built by workers for workers. That's what I was going to come on to. If you could just talk a bit about the consequences or, or uh, the impact that these developments have on working class communities and, and their institutions. So if you go from 45 and the growth of the kind of Fabian approach and then through to the 60s and 70s and the problems that are experienced by nationalised industry and then through to Thatcher slash New Labour and this idea that there is no alternative, the market is all there is. All of those uh, developments in the post-war period, what do they do to working class institutions and what impact do they have on working class people? Well, it's it's a decimation and it, and it should be looked at, I think, in that way. And one of the only ways of understanding the, the present is to is to understand the powerlessness, the marginalisation, uh, then the demonisation. So first of all, let's just just begin with with the political economy aspects is is, you know, so they were told that the work that they did was no longer of any use to the country. So that's miners, that's shipbuilders, that this was no longer of, of really any consequence and that manual labour, in fact, or skilled labour was a thing of the past. This reached its consummation with, with new labour's educational policy, which was all about transferable skills and the knowledge economy. So the idea that we all had to go to university. So, so what you had was the opening up of, of higher education of universities, often with terrible problems for universities in maintaining standards, credibility, and those things. The closing down of the industries around which a huge number of communities lived, and then the denigration of how they lived, and then the state nationalization of the, own, the institutions. The only ones that are left really are the are the working men's clubs and the miners' clubs that still function in some ways in those places. But you don't need to go very far to travel around the northeast and, and the northwest. And now assembly halls and miners' clubs are fashionable flats in university towns. They, they, they built public spaces. They built debate spaces, educational institutions. And then they were told, oh, so vocational training apprenticeships are completely decimated. If you look at the graph about investment in university education and, and investment in vocations, in the kind of early 70s, there's a rough parity. And then it's huge. Right. I mean, there is a disintegration. 
And then they're told, oh, but we do need our toilets fixed and we do need to build houses and, oh, and, and we do need skilled workers and so import immigrants. So right. they were told that their skills were useless and then they were told that they had to accept immigration because they were useless and they couldn't do the, the work. And what happened is obviously the labour is becoming increasingly middle class and buying into a use that word again, a teleology, a notion of an end state where there is no working class. So they're kind of bought into an idea that these things no longer matter. And then they're being priced out of, of, of the market by essentially one thing communism is very good at. One of the very few things it was good at was maintaining its vocational training. Right. Um, they kept it from pre-war. Mm. I mean, in Poland and um, Bulgaria, um, I've looked into this. They, they kept essentially pre-war training right so what you had was incredibly skilled bricklayers mm. electricians plumbers coming in and essentially for 20 to 30 years there'd been no investment in those communities at all and if there was it wasn't it was about going to university it wasn't about those skills and 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 those trades so left without representation without institutions without a place in in the society and then and completely understandably, people are, and me too, are, will always be sympathetic to poor immigrants who come and, and the necessity of, of welcoming them and building relationships with them. So essentially, they, they almost disappear from politics, but also disappear from, from labor's yeah. concerns that they're racist, that yeah. they're backward, that, you know, if they're looked at at all, I would say it would be reminiscent of how Native Americans were looked at on reservations. You know, well, there's family problems, there's drink, the alcohol. Mm. You know, if you look at the opiate stuff, all through mining, old mining villages mm. and surrounding areas. And then came the shock of it all, which is is that they actually exist and they actually yeah. win elections. Yeah. And that's the <laughs> scandal of Brexit, is that the losers won. Yeah. I want to come on to Brexit because it is, it's we the happy, look. not the ending, but it's the happy moment in this story, I think, which is the return of those people who'd been decimated for so long saying we're still here. But I've got some specific questions to Please. ask you on that. But, the, but first thing I wanted to just, the just point to, I was making just to, just to say is that that was the shock of Brexit for lots of people is that yeah. they really thought that the, they've got phrases, progressives, the arc of history. Yeah and the right side of history yeah, they're, right. they're they're quite whiggish yeah. in this way so this was inexplicable how could Absolutely. how could this be yeah um and that's how i view that as, as fundamentally to do with with class mm -hmm. and an affirmation of a certain inheritance which says i trust parliament more than the ecj you yeah. know it goes quite deep oh yeah always good to break that so-called arc of history <laughs> this always surprises <laughs> the right people who need to be surprised just uh, on that I think very accurate description you gave of, of of the attack really on working class institutions and working class communities. I wanted to just talk about. I mean, you know, there is economic decimation, the the denigration of the work that they did, and the removal of the work that they did. There's community denigration in the sense of you know capitalists and others abandoning these communities when they're no longer useful, with all the terrible consequences that can have. And then there's also cultural denigration and uh, demonization, as you refer to it. So one of the interesting things, I think, is that Labour shifts towards the kind of progressive liberalism is really all that it has going for it in the 1980s, I think, is quite an, an important moment mm. for that. Um, if you look at Labour councils, for example, especially in London, that's really when they start to embrace identity politics and ideas of racial equality and gay equality and other ideas which are incredibly important ideas, but they become something quite different, something quite identitarian, something quite divisive and so on. And it's really uh, through that process, and this continues through to today, that we also see the, the denigration of working class culture and of working class values. And this idea that, you know, we liberals who tend to live in London or, or in, in the city, are more enlightened than you. We're more switched on. We're more politically correct. We have all the right views and you guys are backward and stupid. So it's such a comprehensive assault at so many different levels. And do you think any of those attacks is the decisive one in terms of communicating to working class people that they 
are no longer valued by society or do you think it's a kind of uh, an effect that builds up over time well it's it's certainly a cumulative attack and i'm with you so that's also linked to the denigration of or the complication relating to the second world war so mm. a huge thing is is that working class people fought and supported the war and they got an enormous reward in 45 there was a recognition of how they'd been treated before by many middle class people so and and that led to to a genuine kind of of left patriotism yeah um that was in many ways embodied in that atlee bevin combination so what was the working class role it wasn't seen as that the working class in in britain and got to talk about the English working class too, or the only working class in Europe that didn't go fascist, didn't go communist, stayed straight with Labour, stayed straight with Parliament. This was an astonishing resolve, but you look back then to what happened after Chartism with the formation of of Labour, and you see that it understood and valued the inheritance of liberty, Mm. of free speech, and um, working class promoted religious toleration way, mm-hmm. way early. But it, it wasn't done in liberal terms. It was done through freedom of association, you know, that you, people were allowed. So the big people forget, and it's, it's not when you talk about it now, but in 1889, you know, the dock strike, the thing that shocked middle class opinion was, was the sight of Cardinal Manning and, the Salvation Army, William Booth, of Catholic and Protestant working together. The scandal mm. of the cooperative mm. burials was that Catholics and Protestants buried each other. Mm. There was a very split working class, but we, the Labour movement accommodated yeah. Catholic conservatism and, uh, and, if you like, the Protestant conservatism with, within itself, within the frame of, of a quite uh, radical Labour movement yeah. that understood that class and the economy would have to be dealt with. So, so much of that working class culture is still alive. So, for example, we did research, what is the most valued characteristic among people, if you ask them, is is the people who buy their round? Is there still the notion of mutuality Absolutely. and people who don't yeah. are free riders? <laughs> so this idea of mutual contribution, of, of all that they've done to retrieve some dignity from humiliating experience foundational experience which was that mixture of enclosures and industrialization which left them as paupers in the new towns so essentially culturally all that they'd built and there was a lot in that about bravery and stoicism and it was very contrary to the expressive self love of emerging (laughs) liberal culture so they were seen as also emotionally inadequate yeah so the whole contribution of the working class to post-war music, yeah, which was an extraordinarily rich thing of writing, all of, all of this was for nothing, you know, mm. Mm. as of as of nothing, and has very little representation. So to answer your to answer your question, it was an assault on a class, and it was economic, it was political, and it was cultural, and it was happening simultaneously and quite intensely on all fronts, yeah. and that was part of the new left. Yeah, which was going to be a very different, you know, it's not so much liberty as as a sort of relativism. So yeah. you, working class used to understand liberty as being able to express contrary views safely yeah, and being able to p- practice your religion without threat. But there were much more mixed views about what was going on sexually in terms of drugs. There, was, there were reservations about those things that, that, that were automatically seen as reactionary. So Absolutely. real. when I say culture, I'm not just talking about arts. And it was an assault on a certain stable, modest life that was no longer seen as worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you about buying rounds. Where I come from, the, the biggest insult you can make against someone is that they don't get their round in. Mm. It's, it's seen as the... The death knell of their reputation. So these things don't die. Yeah. What I'm saying is they still knock around. Absolutely. I agree with your outline there that you've just put. And it, it struck me there was a film a couple of, a few years ago about the gay rights activists who went to a mining community in the 1980s as a true story to assist with the miners' strike. And the film captured the culture clash between the two groups, but obviously it did so because it was made today these days it did so with much more of the positive emphasis on 
the gay identitarian groups who went to these mining communities who basically opened their eyes to the right way to live and how to dress in a zany way and to shake off their kind of staid, square, homely culture which I thought was actually quite an apt description of some of the political views that now do pass for allegedly progressive left-wing attitudes. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. But I, I want to bring it forward before we get to Brexit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your time. Great crescendo. I want to bring it to Corbynism. So mm. we've gone through a kind of potted history of, of what's happened to labor and what's happened to working class communities. And then we have Corbynism, which is not as straightforward as people might assume. So to some people, it looks like an attempt to recover old labor values. To others, it looks like a kind of neo-Marxist zealous movement of young radicals. And then you, I think, have said something very interesting about Corbynism, which is that it, it actually is reminiscent in some ways of new labor, which Corbynistas would be horrified by but in the sense that it still is it's a labor movement so to speak which adheres to a globalist view or an ideal of a cosmopolitan global order uh, which emphasizes freedom of movement over i don't know working class wages or whatever it might be so uh, that would strike a lot of people not least corbyn supporters as a controversial statement yeah it's just to to bring to public discussion the idea that uh, many of the assumptions of Corbyn and New Labour as regards the theoretical structures of of liberalism, of of globalisation, are very similar. But it's taken a while for that to really come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So there was another bit of Corbynism that that was Benite. Yeah. That was Eurosceptic, that had a genuine connection and respect for working class culture and and institutions. So it's taken a while to look at the class basis of of Corbynism. And the class basis of of Corbynism has turned out to be overwhelmingly middle class, identity based. But that wasn't as clear initially. I I genuinely thought that there was a possibility for Labour to to lead a democratic Brexit, actually, that Corbyn was the only conceivable figure who could do that. And perhaps deep in his soul, he sits there sorrowful. But he quite correctly analysed that the class relations in the party weren't going to permit him to follow that path. So, yes, so, I mean, one working-class man said to me at a a meeting in Bolton, you know, he said, Blair, Corbyn, you know, two cheeks of the same arse. That's what he actually... (laughs) And and I asked him what he was was talking about. He says, well, there's no place for us in any of this. Right, right. And that's one way of putting it. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people feel exactly like that. Right, so on to Brexit. We've talked about the post-war assault on the people who make up the backbone of this country. And they are forgotten or people think they've disappeared or people think they're all at university doing these new ridiculous courses but actually they're still there they're still working they're still uh, in their communities brexit obviously expressed many different communities aspirations but to what extent do you think the the working class is saying guys we're still here we still have agency and we're going to assert our presence do you think that was a decisive factor in Brexit? If you look at it, when the campaign started, Brexit looked a bit like the William Hague coalition. You know, <laughs> a few a few nasties, a few weirdos, <laughs> stranded shires. Mm. And its polling was like that. It was actually when the referendum started that working class people started to look at this Mm. as a genuine way of restoring some form of democratic representation. So I was 
involved in Labour Leave and trade unions against the EU. I had a relationship with the Leave campaign. So I was travelling about. And what you saw was from Newcastle right down to Dover, you know, which is the the country I moved to, you could feel, Mm. you could feel it moving. So without the working class vote, it it would never have happened. It was decisive. And this was the moment that they could say, and the thing I kept on hearing was, if we don't do this, you, they said, pointing at me, will never listen to another word we say. Mm. Right. So it was a real reclamation mm. of some form of democratic accountability was going on, a restoration of, of a democracy where people were allowed to make their mistakes. Mm. So, yeah, I, the word, the working class vote, was decisive and it remains decisive this is what they can't shift this is the root of the mayhem it's it's obvious that the ruling class are completely committed to remain yeah and yet they can't shift this very very strong commitment that people have to to the vote that they made and now they realize that they're really doubting whether democracy works or you know but that that's the covenantal promise of democracy that the working class always cleave to that their conditions could be changed not through violence but through voting and organization and building their institutions Mm. and that's why this is really serious politics now so do do you see brexit as being in keeping with a very long tradition in this country in fact i mean you talked about the chartists you go through to the suffragettes of course and or you could go back to Peterloo, the 200th yeah. anniversary of which was very recent. You have these great moments, defining moments in the history of this country, particularly England, but the UK more broadly, in which working class communities played a key role in demanding democratic clout and in protecting democratic accountability because they see it correctly as the only means through which their communities can affect change and improve their lives. Whereas I think one of the things that the kind of middle class Remainers and Ramonas and others don't understand is that just because they have access to various institutions and platforms and mechanisms through which to influence policy, that doesn't mean other people do as well. So there's a very interesting divide on there. Who has power and where do they have it? But do you see Brexit as being in keeping with those traditions and uh, of working class democracy? Well, in every way. That's that. That's the point. In every way, including the point from the previous question, is that the working class contribution was decisive in all in all of these things. There's always a smattering of of campaigning groups and and moral action groups, but the winning of working class support for things was decisive in all of that. And then the extension of the vote was was a really sustained. Um, thing and, and patience and religious yeah. toleration. So people are, are mistaken in, in thinking that people voted in the referendum and the working class thought that the ruling class would keel over. They didn't. Mm. Mm. And so there's a resolution. I mean, there's a historic memory in that. And, you know, we, we talked earlier about, about the economic things and the political things and the cultural things. But, uh, you know, above all, I think it was theoretical and philosophical that these people did not matter. Yeah. That globalization was going a certain way, that liberalism was going a certain way, that technology demanded a borderless world that, uh, and they're also asserting something about the nation state yeah. and the importance of a national political community yeah. and the sovereign nature of the decisions that can be corrected mm. but can you know through other votes so yeah so this brexit is is far more interesting than we're looking yeah so we get we get tied up in in all these very short term hoo-hahs and and language but in fact brexit is 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 genuinely important because it says where does power lie yeah and who holds it and this notion in in english history in particular that you can get rid of your rulers yeah turns out to be a lot you know like can i vote them out that's why i kept on you know kept on being asked in the referendum campaign can i vote them out yeah well no and that was sort of the end of the okay well let's stick with the system we've got then yeah i feel the same way and i sometimes i think i've put my finger on the magnitude of brexit and then i realize it's even larger than i had thought i mean i think it really does 
crystallized so many historical questions, historic questions. In many ways, it's like, you know, the ruling classes thought they had put a lid on all those unresolved questions of English history about who rules, where does power lie, who is sovereign or what is sovereign. Who owns the land. Who owns the land, all those things. And then along comes Brexit and blows that lid off and everything flies out. And what you have now is a ruling class desperately trying to put the lid back on. But one thing I wanted to ask you about the vote for Brexit and particularly the working class vote for Brexit, which which was decisive, as you say, to what extent can it be seen as, and this brings us on back to blue labour and those ideas, to what extent do you think the vote for Brexit is an expression of a desire for social solidarity, for something outside of yourself? Because one of the things that strikes me is that really, you know, to, there are many ideologies swirling around in this country, but two of the key ones of recent times, which is the kind of, I don't know, Thatcherite, New Labour, market worship approach. And then there's the kind of progressive liberalism slash Corbynist pushback against that. Both of those actually share something important in common, which is they have a very individuating dynamic and a very atomizing dynamic where you can only be understood really as an individual. And therefore, things like family and community, far less the nation state, don't particularly matter that much. Do you see Brexit as in some ways an attempt to restore democracy and respect for working class communities, but also to recover something beyond the self, which can connect us to each other? Yeah, I, I would I would say so. Just to, to look at that, I mean, if you look at what links Thatcherism or New Labour with the sort of, I sometimes call it sort of nomadic, nomadic progressivism, mm. just because the idea is, is of the individual freed from all constraints. Yeah. The ultimately unconstrained self, you know, without, without any thought about, you know, Roman emperors and what they were like when they were freed from all constraints. <laughs> and so there's a whole load of stuff there that, that we can or we, we could talk about, but probably won't about, about sin, you know, and about doing harm to others if you put yourself first. But uh, fundamentally, what links them is individualism and globalization. So there is a twin thing. The first is Thatcher had a view of the global market that you had to be competitive in this in this global global market. And I would say that the underpinning sort of remain left progressive progressivism is a borderless world where you know everybody gets to know everybody and is everybody and no one and themselves it's 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 <laughs> it but what's all neglected in this is is how do you look after children how do you look after old people a home what does it mean to have a home in the world and the if you look at the four factors of globalization which is you know when i say capitalism just everybody i mean a system that tries to turn human beings and nature into a commodity, and a commodity is something with a fluctuating price on the market. So it's it's an it's an insane thing that actually tries to commodify creation itself. Yeah. So that's a relentless power, and th- and then you've got this idea of an administrative state, which upholds a form of procedural justice, which is embedded within an international treaty-based system that's based on the primacy of liberalism, that's property rights, human rights. Uh, and those ideas bound within a uh, technological teleology that it doesn't matter because you can't control yeah. technology. So all of this moves away from any stability of settlement, any stability of life. So you have the churn of populations, you have the churn um, of capital, you have the same procedures. So a lack of any distinctive local institutions any mediation between and then you realize oh my god what you're dealing with is the concentration of capital increasingly which we can see in building societies and banks and all forms are increasingly centralized and the centralized state is that in fact the individual has no power that you just have to adjust Mm -hmm. you just have to fit in and then you've got these aching sense of losses your mum's 300 miles away in a care home and you think she's being neglected but you can't get home and you can Mm -hmm. barely pay your rent so yeah so just to say this is a very long way and i apologize for for, i just wanted to add globalization to the individualism yeah that as a teleology of the direction of life that's almost technologically 
driven and that undermines the very fundamental meaning of people's lives yeah you know absolutely how can i be good yeah how can i honor my obligations to those that i love yeah you know the and these things become and then that's the nature of the impotence and the rage and the tragedy of it all is that labor was precisely that institution mm. that offered representation within a quite conservative framework of institution building and parliamentary reform I think that that it's a really important point about the impact of so-called individualism on the individual because I think that's one of the frustrating things about the the cult of the individual of recent times which is that it actually doesn't bolster individual autonomy or individual freedom but it can have the opposite effect because the unrestraining of the individual from any sense of responsibility or connection can actually lead to a great deal of confusion and you know if you look at the politics and, and emptiness and emptiness and and if you look at the politics of identity what that creates are individuals who are utterly reliant on validation from external powers be it the state validating their identity or the community respecting every gender choice that they make and if you don't they will have a nervous breakdown so it actually creates this kind of psychic dependence on authority so it, it, i think that's one of the ironies of this kind of worship of the individual whether it comes from the market forces or the kind of new so-called progressive left is that it actually ends up crushing the individual and in isolating ways. them yeah and, and that's the complexity of having to negotiate long-term relationships because that they are if for an individual to flourish it's impossible for them to be autonomously self-directing they have to honor other people and that's increasingly seen as a patriarchal yeah, or that's right. monstrous imposition when in fact we, we used to call it love yeah yeah so you know so there's a disenchantment yeah that then further removes meaning and the sense of being part of something good so yeah. we are you know aristotle was right we are social beings we inherit language, we didn't choose it. We inherit parents, we didn't choose it. We inherit a political system. We and this idea that you choose these things is the origin of the madness. It's just a mistake about the power of the individual to define their life. Absolutely. And then that limits the possibility of change. Yeah. Because you can't get together with others. Yeah. And anyway, you shouldn't. Democracy shouldn't be. Democracy is inherently involves insiders, so therefore it's inherently lots of bad things in yeah. And then you reach the ridiculous situation where people think they can choose their own sex and, and decide what gets put on their birth certificate. And you, and it goes down this rabbit hole of, you know, pretend. It's choices. the same logic. It's the same logic of yeah. choice when it's a fundamental mistake to think that you can choose everything about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's nuts. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. I wanted to ask you about globalism. You've made a very interesting point before about the difference between globalism and internationalism, which I actually think is an important point to make and an important point to reiterate because... One of the frustrating things I find is that because I'm Eurosceptic and I'm concerned about the erasure of borders and I'm interested in people's attempt to restore the national sovereignty and democracy, people, and democracy yeah, yeah. Uh, people will assume you're anti-internationalist, you're a little Englander, you want to hide away from the world. But in my mind, globalism and internationalism are very, very different things. Well, and how would you describe the difference between them? Well, they're opposed things. They are completely opposed things. So globalization is based on the unimpeded movement of capital goods, services, and people through space. It is illegal to resist that movement. So globalization is the ultimate ideology where it makes it illegal to resist capitalism. That is I think deep down what the Lisbon Treaty is about, yeah. that workers can't organize for themselves because that would discriminate against other workers. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it's, it's impossible. And that's embedded in theory says that we'll all be better off mm. in that way. Whereas internationalism is in, in all cases, a solidarity with others who are oppressed and exploited 
within a capitalist nation-state economy or within a globalized economy. So it's very vital for people like me. So, for example, two weeks ago, I went to, to show my solidarity with the Kurds in eastern Syria who fought ISIS. Mm. You know, if you want to know a fascist, violent, yeah. rapist, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And, and with women's equality, and but they're not European, right? So... Yeah. So that's a very important expression of internationalism. Two weeks' time, I'm going to Iraq on the pilgrimage of the Arba'in with the Shia, because they're also trying to resist the corruption, the pollution of their waters. So internationalism is an active cultivation of a relationship of solidarity with people who are resisting exploitation and oppression. Right. And globalization is a system which makes it illegal to resist those things. Right. I, I just, I just think it's quite important that we rediscover that yeah. distinction. Yeah. I think you've nailed it there. So you, you talk about the Lisbon Treaty. I think that description of the Lisbon Treaty as effectively making worker solidarity impossible on the ridiculous basis that it would discriminate against other foreign, possibly migrating workers. In relation to the EU more broadly, to me and you and to many, many other people, it's obvious what's wrong with the European Union. You know, it's uh, you have described it, and uh, I think this is an echo of Tony Benn, as, as a, an entirely capitalistic institution from head to toe. The greatest capitalist project ever devised by the human mind, yeah. because it's perfect. It's, it, it, it's at all levels. It really is. So the question I had to you, because this does mystify me, and I've had the debate with them millions of times, but why do leftists and progressives not see that or do they see it and they don't care have they kidded themselves what, what's happening with that okay so it goes back to the previous question so i i think it's necessary if i do try to live some form of humility in in, in life to understand i've really tried to engage with it so the first is a real hatred of nationalism mm. which we can completely understand that the eu genuinely represents an international order that that stops war now set, setting aside that this doesn't quite extend in europe to russia yeah you know which is a kind of uh, important point that the eu is still fundamentally embedded in nato and by the way i think a very important part of the brexit agenda that we should pursue is a reconciliation with russia mm -hmm. and a, at least recognize their losses in the second world war which we've never done as a country so i would like the queen to go to moscow because she lived through the war as her last act, sort of, right. and say to the Russian people, thank you. Mm. I think it's it's long overdue. But set that aside, if we're trying to understand left progressive Europhilia, the first is a, a hostility to nationalism, and we have to engage with that. And then the EU is a peace project, you know, that we should recognise that it may be extremely unpleasant to witness the negotiations between EU nation states, but it's certainly better than war, and particularly France, Germany, having some way of sharing power is a tremendous advance. And don't forget Jacques Delors coming in the 80s to the Trade Union Congress and talking about social Europe and social mm. protections and, and all manner of things that were threatened by Thatcherism so that there was a notion that, the, that Europe was more progressive and more socially progressive than, than we were. And then you look at the origins of the EU, and they're quite inspiring in some ways. Um, German, French, iron, coal, cooperation across, across borders. Mm. I, I think it was kind of, I mean, I'm from a long Labour history of, of Euroscepticism, but I could understand, and I, I could really understand holding that position up till the 80s. And then what you have, particularly in the early 90s with Maastricht and then with Lisbon, is weirdly the the conquest through treaty law. So this is the thing, you can't change yeah. it through an election. Um, this is this you can't reform. Yeah. In fact, became colonised by Thatcherism. And so they stopped doing the Catholic stuff, the subsidiarity, the local priority. And they went for a globalised model. So I can understand people who voted for the EU in 75 as I can understand the rationality of that. Yeah. It, it, it just no longer applied now. So what you have is the disintegration of the political economy of the left, which means that they can't, don't have a critique of capitalism. So, I mean, you could argue till you're blue in the face, but it just remains true that a third of Labour's manifesto would be illegal under yeah. EU law. Absolutely. I, I like the idea that it, it could be is just ludicrous. 
And so then it becomes a anti-racist peace project. So this is the crucial thing. Whenever I talk to Tories about the EU, I always end the conversation with saying, and thank you for doing the work of socialism, because without sovereignty, we couldn't <laughs> deliver our political economy. And they, they look at me as Scots, but I always have the good manners to to do that. So what you have weirdly is conservatives doing the work of socialism yeah. and you have socialists actually doing the work of capitalism. Right. And that's one of the peculiar features of our time. That's a really fascinating way to put it. My last question, I've got a million more questions, but I'm just going to keep it to one. Where now for the Labour Party? Because surely there'll be a split. Surely it will go off in different directions. Is it salvageable at all? Or do you think, having gone through the pains of new labour and its nanny statism and its globalism and its market obsession through to the problems of Corbynism, having now become a Remain party, which in my eyes dooms it in, in the eyes of many working class people, mm -hmm. is it a salvageable project or do we need something new? Well, I, I think I began the interview by talking about uh, a strange work, you know, faithfulness, the Labour tradition is a very rich tradition which has enriched my life enormously, transformed myself. So I take inspiration from that. I also take comfort in in a lifetime of political defeat. I don't think I've ever really been on the winning side. So um, in many ways, this is normal. And the right. hysteria and the noise around it but there is a country and there is a country where people live and there is a country where people want democracy and they want a transformed economy and they want some social security and stability in their lives. And my hunch is, is that something close to blue labor is the majority view um, in the country. Now politics is, is like that. You know, if labor continues to, to go along the way that it's going, then it will lose an election and the Conservatives will win. And what happens when you lose once or twice and then three times is that there's some notion that maybe you should try and reconnect to the people who built the party and the values of the people who, in fact, do matter. Mm. So everything that I do in politics is about looking to, to that point when Labour engages in a conversation about its own renewal mm. and the realities of the democratic politics and it's just the most important thing for me is, is just that this position is there in the conversation when that happens and opens up space for deepening democracy for forms of economic democracy of restoring vocation of establishing regional banks this is the things that will bring some meaning and some fulfillment to people in their lives so labor's been here before it's not new i urge people to to take that view it's been a very, very important institution in the history of our country, and I'm faithful to it. Morris Glassman, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.